We are, um, we are in the Gospel of John. We believe, most of, most of you who have been here for a while know that we believe in a form of preaching called Christ-centered preaching, where on the road to Emmaus, Jesus says to his disciples that are following him, he says that from Moses and the prophets, all things were written concerning me. In other words, he says that the whole of the Old Testament, all of the Bible from beginning to end, is all in one way or another speaking about Jesus and his work on the cross for us, his sal- the salvation that God has worked and, and, and completed in the world through Jesus. And so whenever, whatever, any sermon that you hear here at Resprez is going to be a whole lot more about Jesus than it is about us. We do talk about other things, how we respond to that in gratitude. We talk about, you know, different things. But the main point of every sermon is, is the cross of Christ. Paul said that we preach Jesus Christ crucified. And so every, the point of every sermon is to do that. And then once in a while in a preacher's career, you actually get to preach the passage about Jesus being crucified. So this is a, this is a super easy, easy day, <laughs> but a heavy day and a significant day. Because if we get wrong what's being said, if we get wrong what the cross is all about, we totally miss the love of God and we miss why it is that God is in fact a good, good father. So would you please, uh, would you stand one more time out of respect for the reading of God's word as I read to us? from John, uh, John chapter 19, the second half of verse 16, all the way through verse 30. Before I do, let's pray that God would illuminate our minds to his word before we even read the scripture. So join me in prayer. Thank you, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity to come together to hear your word proclaimed over us. We know your promise that you speak to us is that you are present with us now speaking to us. Through your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit, you are transforming us as you reveal to us the beauty, the cosmic, eternal beauty of your son, Jesus, that your spirit is at work transforming our hearts, strengthening us in grace, Lord, so that we might be free to surrender to the freedom that is only in you. And so, Lord, we pray that your spirit would be with us We pray that you would move us in our minds and in our hearts. We pray that we would not just think about these things, but that they would affect us at the deepest level as we hear the story of how you incarnated onto the earth and died for us and what that means. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you promise to beautify your afflicted ones. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is God's inerrant word. And so they took Jesus. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic and in Latin and Greek. And so the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write 
the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. But Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. And when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And this was to fill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And so the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, and so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on the hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Please be seated. The traditional understanding of of the crucifixion, of the death of Jesus, is that Jesus uh, was our substitute. That he stood in our place and took the penalty of God's wrath upon him for us. Uh, And and that uh, that idea has never been popular um, among among non-believers. That some of the more... um, antagonistic new atheists. Christopher Hitchens used to take this particular idea, the, the core of Christianity, that Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins and, and, and say that vicarious atonement, in other words, Jesus standing in our place and receiving the punishment that we deserved was the most, uh, was the most abhorrent, awful, horrible, malicious thing that he'd ever heard and would never want to worship a God like that. Recently, there's been another guy, another guy named Steve Chalk, an uh, evangelical pastor from England inside the church, who has likened this idea of the death of Christ on our behalf to the being equivalent with, with, with cosmic child abuse. Let me read, this is, this, is, this is Steve, let me let him speak for himself, speaking about the atonement and why Jesus had to die. He said, the fact is... He's refuting this. He says, the fact is that the cross is not a form of cosmic child abuse. The vengeful father punishing his son for an offense that has not even been committed. Understandably, both people inside and outside the church have found this twisted version of events morally dubious and a huge barrier to faith. Deeper than that, however, is that such a concept stands in total contradiction to the statement that God is love. If the cross is a personal act of violence perpetrated by God towards humankind, but born by His Son, then it makes a mockery of Jesus' own teaching that to love, to love your enemies and to refuse to repay 
evil with evil. You ever think about it like that? The basic question, basic objection he's raising is, 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 is why, would he, why does anybody have to die at all? Basically. Are you serious? I mean, what kind of bizarre holdover is this from, from, from the ignorance of ancient times? I mean, how is this different from people throwing children into the mouth of the volcano to appease the gods from destroying us? How is this different from uh, the, the mass sacrifice of children on the top of Aztec pyramids to appease the gods. Uh, are you trying to tell me, Christian, Mr. Christian, that God demands human sacrifice to appease his wrath against us? That seems, that's a little weird. And if that's true, uh, then it must mean, it necessarily means that I am mis- morally superior to this version of God that you're presenting me with because I would never, ever, 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 ever do that. I would just forgive people. Why can't God just do the same for us? So what do we say? What do we say to that charge? Are you feeling him? Anybody feeling him? Like getting a little squirmy in your seat? <laughs> How do we answer that charge? Why can't God just forgive us? Why uh, he expects us to do the same for others? Why why does anybody have to die? It's a good, you know, it's it's a good question. It's a great question because it gives us the opportunity to answer it for for the most part. I mean, and and the reality is it's so important to get this right. Because if you misunderstand the cross, to misunderstand some fundamental things about God is to, is to necessarily make uh, the mercy of God seem like tyranny to us uh, and miss the love and the grace and mercy of who God is and what Jesus has done for us. And, and so the Bible, the Bible answers this question. And the Bible doesn't just answer the question with a couple of like propositional truth statements or logical explanations. The Bible really answers this question, or God has answered this question by creating uh, in the fabric of history the categories of priest, which is the, uh, uh, someone who intercedes between God and man on our behalf, and the category of kings, which are the defenders and protectors. In the Bible, the defender and the protector of God's people and God has manipulated time and space and history to, to integrate these categories in to our history, to time and space, so that when it comes to the New Testament, he then displays or presents Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of these things, that Jesus is our intercessor between God and ourselves, and that Jesus is our king. He is the one who protects and defends God's people. And this passage talks about both of those categories, both of those offices, both of those things that Jesus fulfills for us. And so that the big idea of this passage, the thesis statement, the one thing that John really wants to get us to know is this, is that Jesus is our high priest and eternal king who has paid our moral debt to God in full. Jesus is our high priest and our eternal king who has paid our moral debt to God in full. 
And now we'll look at that one part, little piece at a time. First, Jesus is our high priest. Look at verse uh, 23 through 24. So when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments, they divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven into one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scriptures which said, they divided my garments among them, and from my clothing they cast lots. And so the soldiers did these things. Well, last week we talked about how Jesus was the Passover lamb, that God had manipulated time and space and history, instituted the Passover feast and celebration with all of these elements that, would, that Jesus would then fulfill so that thousands of years later we would find Jesus standing uh, in temples in, in Herod's praetorium next door to where all the chief other priests were, were inspecting and slaughtering the Passover lambs. And in Herod's praetorium, the chief priests were inspecting and getting ready and then slaughtering the Passover lamb, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Huge prophetic stream in the Bible. This is another one where John points this out, that there in, in, uh, in Psalm 22, of which Jesus quotes uh, and, and many prophecies from within it are fulfilled in the crucifixion of Christ. Uh, this is to fulfill in, in Psalm 22. It says, They divided my garments among them for my clothing. They cast lots. And what's interesting about this prophecy is that the Romans are the ones who fulfill it. Right? Which makes it, that's more difficult. It's one thing to get Peter and John and James in on the, in on the, uh, on the sham to, as some people try to say, manipulate because they know the prophecies to make them, come, make them come true. It's another thing for Peter and James and John to come up to the Roman barracks in the middle of the day and knock on the door and say, hey, we need your help with this. We have this prophecy and what we need you guys to do is cast lots for these clothes while after you crucify them. If you could do that, it would really help us out, bro. Hardly possible that the Romans... Uh, would collude with the disciples in manufacturing prophetic fulfillment. And this is one, in no, one more prophecy among hundreds that converge on this point, which make, which make it impossible to believe anything other than the fact that God has told us the end from the beginning, that there is supernatural intelligence behind the revelation in the Bible. But John is actually wanting to make another point, and that other point, he, he brings out the tunic itself. He says, the tunic, though seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And so the soldiers say, let's not, let's not rip it up. And when we, when we interpret the Bible, look, when we're coming to the Bible and we're reading it, super important principle is to, say, is to, is to try to figure out not how what we think or what we read it in, in our cultural context, how our filters interpret the Bible, but to... to, to to know the culture of the original audience, the, guy, the, the, the people who were reading John's gospel, when they saw that, when they read this, what would they think? What would their culture tell them about a tunic that was seamless, woven from top to bottom? How, when they read this, the original audience in this time and in this place, what would they have thought about? And what we know, what we know from the book of Exodus, a couple places in the book of Exodus, also from the writings of Josephus, a Jewish historian, was that there was the high priest of Israel wore 
a seamless tunic that was sewn from top to bottom. It wasn't, it was a, it was a very special garment. In fact, it was so sacred, it was so uh, important that, that the Roman pilot, actually the, the Romans held the high priestly garments in lock, they locked them down and only let them, the Jews have them for special occasions because they were so very special. And so what John is wanting us to know, what we, what, if we were Jews in the ancient world and we were reading this gospel, when we came across this passage that said, a tunic that was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom, our minds would immediately think, wow, Exodus, uh, or everything that you knew about the high priest, and we would say, why is Jesus wearing the tunic of the high priest? And that's exactly what John wants us to think. He wants us to know that Jesus, in some way, shape, or form, is acting in the office of high priest. Now, what is he, what is he doing? How is that happening? How is Jesus engaged in the work of high priest? What does a priest do? Priest is the intermediator between God and man. In the Old Testament, what did the priests do? The priests did a lot of things, but they also, main part of their job was the sacrifice of animals. The animal sacrificial, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was... Uh, the priests would be in charge of sacrificing animals, morning and evening, the Day of Atonement, all different kinds of sacrifices for sin and for guilt. You would bring an animal to the, to the temple. You would put your hands on it. Your guilt of, the, of your sin would be transferred onto the animal. And then this priest would sacrifice the animal. The animal would die in your place. As a, and then God would accept that sacrifice as, uh, as, as satisfying cosmic justice. Right? Important thing to understand. God is love. God is also absolutely just. When we sin, when we violate his law, God has to be just. He has to, he has to exercise justice. And so the Old Testament priests, their role was to accept these sacrifices and then God was accepting these as satisfaction for cosmic justice. His wrath was appeased. And we know that. You can go, you can go to the Old Testament. You can go to do a concordant search on wrath you can do a concordant search on sacrifice in the Old Testament and it will just pop up huge, giant lists of the wrath of God being satisfied by the animal who's being sacrificed and then justice being settled, right? Uh, you can also just open the book of Leviticus pretty much, close your eyes, point your finger and almost certainly come across a passage that's going to say the same thing. Israel sinned against God, sinned against God's law, the wrath of God was upon them. They would, the animal sacrifice was the means by which God's wrath would be appeased, and that's what they did. That's what the priests did. Okay. So when we come to the New Testament, though, the book of Hebrews say that what? The animal sacrifice was only a picture of Jesus, that the blood of bulls and goats would never actually forgive sins, that those were a picture of the coming sacrifice that Jesus was going to, to perform on our behalf. But here's what Hebrews says that is astonishingly, amazingly beautiful above and beyond the fact that Jesus was the sacrifice. It also says in chapter 9 that Jesus was also the high priest, that Jesus was both. He was the high priest and he was the sacrifice and that as he walked voluntarily up to the cross, what he was doing was acting as high priest, offering himself up as the ultimate sacrifice, as the ultimate propitiation, big word that means covering the wrath of God 
a sacrifice that appeases the wrath of God and reconciles us to him, that Jesus was, was completing this as the high priest. And it wasn't just any old sacrifice. It was, in fact, the blood sacrifice that instituted the new covenant. And that's the, that's the amazing thing. What Hebrews tells us is that when Jesus is nailed to the cross, when he says it is finished and he dies, that is the second, the moment in time when the old covenant of Moses passes away with all of its requirements of the law and the new covenant is instituted. So the new covenant starts the minute Jesus breathes his last. Now why is that important? To know that Jesus is high priest, that Jesus is sacrificed, that what's happening here, what we are seeing here is a high priestly act where the high priest of God's people is instituting a new covenant for God's people. And the important thing to know is that it's because covenants, covenants are relational. They talk about our relationship with God, but they are also legally binding documents. And what the new covenant says is that because of what Jesus did, in that priestly action, that the wrath of God was satisfied for you forever. Forever. Hebrews says it over and over again. The sacrifice made once for all. This is Paul's whole argument in Romans chapter 3, that when God presented Jesus as a propitiation for sin, as the sacrifice that satisfies his wrath, satisfies cosmic justice, and therefore brings us into reconciliation with him. And because of the value of it, because of the supreme worth of it, it was the, it was the ultimate reality that the animal sacrifices always pointed to because of what it really was in reality, it is sufficient for all sin for all time. It is a legally binding covenant with God. So that not, it's not even possible to make more sacrifices, even if we wanted to. It's not necessary, but it's also not even possible. How could, how could we add to that? Anybody got any great ideas about how we would possibly add to the incarnate God acting in a priestly mode as high priest and sacrifice, instituting a new covenant between God and man uh, that was actually ratified before in eternity past, that carries forward into eternity future, uh, and that satisfies all of God's righteous requirements? Could you add to that by anything? The theological gymnastics that must be done to even consider that possibility are um, astonishing. We cannot add any significance to that cosmic reality. And so, I mean, what that means for us, for all of us that are in Christ, it means that the wrath, listen, the wrath of God is satisfied against you forever. Tomorrow, next week, when you get into it with your wife and you say awful things that you shouldn't say, (laughs) 
when your anger overtakes you and you fall into sin, when lust, when pride, when anger, when greed, when grief, when sadness overcome us, we sin against one another, what's our immediate reaction? It's Protestant penance, right? We think we have to do something. We have to run from God, get out of his presence because we're unholy, and then go do something in order to merit getting back into his good graces and back into his presence. The sinfulness of our hearts still hardwires us to think that we eat. We have to run and we have to work every time we sin. And in some parts of the church, this has been codified into church law. Some other parts of the church, it's less formal but we're all tempted to do it. That when we sin, what do you think? You think God hates me. God is, wrath is upon me. God is punishing me or God will punishing me. You sin, you wince, you hide out. And then if I do good enough for a little bit of time, then God's going to, then, then I'll be okay. I just need to read my Bible more. I need to pray more. I need to serve in the church more. I just need to redouble my efforts and then I'll be presentable to God. And what is that, what is that doing? What, is that, what are we doing when we do that? We are trying to add our own atonement on top of this, the cosmic reality of Jesus' finished work for us on our behalf. And so listen, when we fall into sin, when you want to run, and when you want to work, instead, stop, say to yourself, The wrath of God is satisfied for me forever. And then, at a a gratitude that should flood into your mind over that fact, try to honor him with your life because of who he is and what he's already done for us. Jesus is our high priest. Two, Jesus is our eternal king. Look at the verse 16 down through 22, I think. Here we go. And so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, where they crucified him. And with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. It was written in Aramaic and Latin and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I'm the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When we see the crucifixion or we think about it, it's interesting how John, the other gospel writers, they don't go into gruesome detail about the physical agony of the crucifixion. Probably didn't need to in the original audience. People saw people being crucified. Didn't really need to describe it. But they don't dwell on that. When we hear and we think about the crucifixion, we immediately think horror, physical pain, suffering, uh, is all the anguish that must have physically gone along with being nailed to a tree and left out, hung to die. Nailed on a piece of wood so that you couldn't move, couldn't breathe, and left to dehydrate and asphyxiate in the sun. 
And that's a horrible, horrible thought. We're right to think that. But John, throughout the whole gospel, he hasn't been thinking that way. From the very beginning, he's talked about the glory of Jesus, the exaltation of Jesus in terms of the crucifixion forward, the cross, the resurrection, the ascension into heaven. In John's mind, is all the glory of Christ, that Jesus is being lifted up, exalted, so that all men would be drawn to him. We see Jesus is acting in power on the cross, instituting the new covenant for the new Israel. And John wants us to see through all of this implanted ideas of kingship, God wants us to see this almost really as the enthronement of Jesus as king. Jesus as king being lifted up onto the cross, drawing all men to himself. Jesus as king being lifted up on the cross, acting in power, instituting the new covenant, bringing salvation to all people voluntarily through what he is doing. And John has, you know, puts all these kingly themes in here to like present this. He the Jesus is dressed like a king in front of the soldiers. He's presented in front of the chief priests as king for them to reject him and slaughter him as the king of Israel. Herod, or, Herod, or Pilate writes the sign really exclaiming, Jesus, not just as the king of the Jews, but as the universal king, by writing his title in every known language uh, for everyone to see. And so John wants us to see Jesus here as the king of Israel, lifted up and exalted. And the question is, what does a king do? The king does what? king fights for, king defends his people. How does Jesus fight for us on the cross? How does Jesus defend us? Paul tells us. There's all places, there's all kind of places in Paul to John. I love John because he, he's always pulling back the curtain of reality. He's saying, okay, you know, everybody else wants to deal with the typology, wants to deal with the pictures. But I'm going to give you, I'm going to let you see behind the scenes. And he pulls this curtain back. And you see Jesus, the exalted king over all the universe on the cross, things like that. Paul does the same thing, often telling us the huge, big, cosmic picture of who Jesus is and what's happening here. Uh, And he does it in Colossians. I'm going to read Colossians chapter 13 and 14. Listen, and then I'm going to explain what has just been said. How does Jesus fight for us? Paul says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by, here's how he did it, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, and in, 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 in that act, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Jesus. So questions. Who are the rulers and authorities? The satanic hosts. The fallen angels in the heavenly places that are opposing God. And how? It says that Jesus has disarmed Satan and his hosts. How has he disarmed them? By removing the weapon that they had against us. This is, the cross is being presented here as an offensive strategy where Christ defangs the enemy by 
taking their weapons away from them that they were using against us. What was the weapon they were using against us? It was our individual record of debt, our sin against the law with its legal demands against us, our sin, uh, its legal demands against our sin. Satan, the accuser, is demanding the eradication, the annihilation of mankind based on legal requirements of the law. They are sinners. They have violated your law. They deserve death. And what is the legal demand of the law? Death. The wages of sin is death, which is the contempt of God, the contempt of God's order, the contempt of God's instruction for life, the refusal of uh, to, to, to honor God and to give him thanks, even though we all know he exists. And so this, listen, this, this picture, this, is, this passage of Paul talking about Jesus as our king fighting for us is a, the narrative of the war in heaven. Jesus is fighting against our enemies who are holding the law as a weapon against us and by going on the cross, and by taking our, the penalty of our sins deserve, he disarms. He takes that weapon away from Satan and our enemies and disarms them. And through it, through what looks like weakness, through what looks like passivity, he is waging war against the powers of hell and defeating them for us. This huge picture. It's not just, I mean, we, we, we talk about Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That's true, but it becomes so bland when we say it over and over and over again. The New Testament gives this picture of this massive cosmic battle of angelic forces at war in heaven trying to destroy us, and Jesus, as our champion, as our king, has gone out to battle against them, and the cross is where he waged war and defeated them by disarming them. Imagine that, like an army could just, like an army just come into the other army and all of a sudden just take away all their weapons and they're just standing there in their skivvies with nothing and the other side has all the weapons. What are you going to do now? That's kind of the picture. Disarmed them and their weapons against us. Jesus is our king who has fought for us, who has defended us against evil. So, way bigger way bigger than we usually think about or talk about. So the last question is, what did that accomplish for us? What did that accomplish when he won that victory? And that's the last point, point three. Jesus has paid our moral debt to God in full. Uh, verse 29 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So the, the big picture that Paul is trying to present in that last passage we read of Colossians is Jesus somehow cancels our debt to the law when God, by God nailing it to the cross. Whatever, what does that mean? He says that God has made us alive with him, with Jesus, having forgiven us our trespasses, 
by canceling the record of debt, our sin, that stood against us with its legal demands, the law. This he set aside by nailing it to the cross. What in the world does that mean? Paul is, 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 is um, he's imagining... The certificate of debt, he's imagining it like a bill, like a mortgage bill, like a car payment bill, uh, or so, a, a bill of money that you owe or something that you owe. In this case, it's a bill or a certificate of moral debt against the law that carries with it legal punishment, legal punishment, death. Uh, and he pictures Jesus on the cross as, as a picture somehow of God taking this certificate of debt You owe your life, your eternal soul, for your opposition to the Most High God. Penalty, payment, death. He takes this certificate, this paper certificate is really what he's thinking of, and a picture of God somehow nailing it to the cross. Because Jesus is canceling out our debt by paying our debt for us on the cross, right? We should be on the cross, but we're not. Jesus is on the cross instead of us. Uh, we should be cut off from the presence of the Father, but we're not. Jesus is there on the cross doing it for us, paying our debt for us. Now, but where did Paul get this image from? Where is this imagery coming from? Well, it's coming from the ancient Near East. In the ancient world, when you had a debt, or um, uh, it could be a debt for, for bills, it could be, uh, it could be when you fin- uh, finished payment of a crime when you finish uh, p- serving your prison time. It could be after you were executed. Uh, it could be if you were being purchased out of slavery. Uh, they would take a certificate of debt. They would take it to the magistrate, and the magistrate would write on it, paid in full. It's a Greek word, tetelestai. Everyone say, tetelestai. Tetelestai. It's a Greek word means paid in full. And so Paul is using this common to them illustration to teach them that what Jesus means when he says it is finished, which is that in the darkness of Golgotha, between in those three hours when the sun stopped shining, that every murder, every theft, uh, every assault, every hidden excursion into the darkness of the internet, every moment of racial pride, every monstrous deed of evil, every crime and every sin of every person who is trusted in Christ alone for salvation, Jesus has taken upon himself as if guilty of all of them. And then God has judged that sin in Christ so that we uh, are already judged in Christ. We can never be judged again. He who knew no sin has been made sin on our behalf so that we might be made the righteousness of God. And because of that, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death, from the certificate of death with its legal demands. So far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgression from us. Here's why that's so important. I mean, all these things. 
What that means is, these are again legal terms, legal binding documents. What it means is that our security, our security of our salvation is, not, is based essentially in the righteousness and the goodness of God. That God has done these things. Jesus has instituted this new covenant in part and parcel of this new covenant, this legally binding device, is that Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins, that God has rightly judged him for it, that those penalties have been paid, and that the certificate of debt that we had against the law, all of it, past, present, and future, has been done away with. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, all of our debt was taken care of and pushed away as far as the east is from the west. And how do we know that? Why is Paul why is Paul using this imagery of the certificate of debt? It's because uh, the last words that Jesus said on the cross right before he died was the same word, same Greek word, tetelestai. Also means it is finished. It's the same word that, that magistrates used for paid in full. And Paul, knowing the last word that Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, was the same. He uses this illustration from that culture to teach us what it means. That Jesus doesn't, isn't paid part of our debt. Jesus hasn't paid the principal down and we still owe a bunch of interest payments. Jesus hasn't partially paid our debt. He has paid it in full. What does that mean? What could that possibly mean other than our sins are forgiven? Past, present, future. They can't be charged against us again. If they were, God would be unjust. And so our salvation, our assurance, our assurance is based in the character of God because he would not, he would be unjust to, to blame and charge two people with the same crime. Jesus has paid our debt and we are free. And so, summing up, if we don't understand all those categories, you know, if we're just looking at the cross from our own little bubble, our own little window in history with, with, without thinking about the vast scope of history and all that God has done in time and space, it can be real easy for us to lose sight of, of, the, 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 of, of the, the full picture of God, that he is love, but he is also justice, that that justice must be served. And so how do we say, how can we say that God is love and that at the same time someone had to die? Well, we have to remember, Jesus isn't just a man. He's not an unwilling victim who just, God just pulled out of the crowd and said, you're going to die for everybody else. Jesus is the incarnate God who incarnated into our world to take the penalties of his, of his own judgment against us. And so just as we say that the justice of God compels him it does because he can't violate his own character. The justice of God compels him to do justice in the same way we say that the love of God compels him to save his people. And what that required was for him to personally come 
and suffer and die for us. And so it's not a picture of God punishing some unwitting victim. It's a picture of God satisfying justice the only way possible so that he could save a people for himself so that our sins could be forgiven so that we could be in his presence forever. Amen? Lord, we thank you and praise you that you are our high priest. Lord, you intercede between God and us and it is your righteousness that we bear and you have bared our sins on the cross. Lord, we thank you for being our king, that you single-handedly defeated the armies of hell on our behalf through the sacrifice of yourself. And we thank you, Lord, that this teaches us that the wrath of God has been satisfied and that our sins have been taken from us. We don't have them anymore because you bore them yourself. And so, Lord, I pray this helps us. I pray that this helps us in everyday life as we continue to sin, as we fall short in many different ways. Lord, you know how we fall short better than we do, but we all know how we generally tend to fall short. I pray, Lord, in those moments you would help us to understand that our sins have been taken away from us, that they have been put on Jesus and they are gone that we have been forgiven for our sins, past, present, and future. And in that knowledge, Lord, help us not to run from you, but to stick with you, to stay with you, to allow your spirit to showing us this vision of your beauty to transform us every day into greater and greater uh, abilities to love you and to serve you and to serve one another. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.